Well, good evening. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job in chapter 2. Job chapter 2. Last week we saw the introduction of Job and the circumstances surrounding God, talking about how righteous Job was, and Satan looking for an opportunity to prove that if God took away all of his blessings, he would curse God to his face. He would no longer be a righteous man. And so we saw that happen last week in chapter 1. We talked about the book as a whole as well. But now as we get to chapter 2, this is Job's second test, or actually three. The first happened last week, or happened in our study last week, where we saw him lose all of his earthly possessions and, and, of course, he also lost his children, which was probably the worst of all of it. Then we get to chapter 2, and we have Job's second test. We'll see that in chapter 3, his third test begins, and that's when his friends show up, and that becomes a more challenging uh, test by far. But the second test was awful, as we'll see. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we open your word with reverence, and we ask that despite the fact that we have all fallen short of your glory, failed to be the people that you've called us to be, failed to be the people that we desire to be, we also recognize that you love us, and you graciously forgive us of all sins as we cry out to you. You restore our hearts. And so maybe it's been a tough week. Maybe, maybe we haven't been where we'd like to be, or maybe we've been in places we shouldn't be. But Lord, we ask now that you would just restore our spirits. In your presence, may we just come near to you, that you might draw near to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in verse 1 of chapter 2, on another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And then Satan, or excuse me, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all that he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then. He is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Now, I know it's troubling to read a book like Job and see God having a conversation with Satan. We talked about this last week. Satan does have a place with all of the angels, or actually literally translated sons of God, the Benai Elohim. He does have a place before the throne of God, and we talked about that last week, but I want to cover this again because Satan is still subject to the Lord's authority. You need to know that. So some people see this, and then they go on and they blame God for everything bad that happens in the world. Let me make this abundantly clear. The problems in the world, the difficulties of the world, evil in the, in the world, is the result of two things. The work of Satan and the fallen angels and demons, the spiritual forces of wickedness, <clears throat> and the consequences of man and his actions. 
So you see, man sinned and brought sin into the world. Of course, the devil had a hand in that. So you have spiritual forces at work, but to the same degree, you also have men and women that that are evil in and of themselves. And so there's a lot of evil in the world, but don't go blaming God for sin. That was man's choice. And you can't blame God for the spiritual forces of wickedness, although they are kept under control. And for God's purposes, at certain times, he decides to allow Satan and the fallen angels and demons to do their worst. This is one of those situations. But God wasn't convinced by Satan into doing this. This was God's plan. And it's played out in a narrative form. And and sometimes when a narrative picture is what takes place in heaven, it takes a little bit of license in presenting it in a way that we can understand. Uh, Sometimes uh, inanimate objects are given a voice in the scriptures. It's called anthropomorphism. It's this idea of giving the trees the ability to clap their hands or the rocks the ability to cry out. That's poetic license. There is a degree of poetic license in this in that it's presented in a narrative, but these events took place and God allowed them to take place. Although they were not God's doing, God allowed Satan to first strip Job of all of his earthly belongings and then, of course, his children's lives. And this week we see that God is allowing Satan in this exchange between the Lord and Satan. He's allowing Satan to put Job to yet another test. But the Lord had a specific purpose in allowing Job to be tested a second time. There is a purpose here. God's not surprised by this. He knows the outcome. He knows what's going to happen, and he allows it. And as we think about our world and all of the evil in it, you have to take a little comfort from knowing that even as evil appears to triumph, God is in control. Amen? So he's allowing those things. And you think, well, what possible purpose could there be for God allowing things like this? Well, then you're going to sound like Job's counselors and Job's friends. Because that's what they do in this book. They try to figure out, why would God allow anyone to suffer? Well, certainly that person must have done something to deserve it. And they come to the wrong conclusions, and in the end, they get rebuked by the Lord. So don't make the fatal mistake of thinking that you can figure out what God does and why he does it. If he chooses to share with us his plans, we'll know. If he doesn't, then his ways are above our ways, his thoughts above our thoughts. And part of faith is accepting these things when we can't explain them. The book of Job, is the purpose is not to explain why God did this. The purpose is to understand that he works through suffering. There is a purpose in suffering. God has a purpose in suffering. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, Paul tells us in the book of Romans in chapter 8. So, the Lord, when he's speaking with Satan, though Satan is subject to his authority, the Lord reaffirms his description of Job as a model servant in spite of his many trials. He, he had gone through quite literally hell. And now, he still looks at Job, and he still affirms that Job is a man who's righteous. Look at the words he uses. Have you considered my servant Job? He says, there is no one on earth like him. Even though he had suffered, remember at the end of his suffering during that first test, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And it says that in all this, in the end of chapter 1, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. 
He also, before he said that, he also, while he tore his robe in mourning for his children and shaved his head, he also fell to the ground in worship. So though he was mourning, he was worshiping. Though he was mourning, he was worshiping. So he hadn't done anything to deserve this, and he responded in an appropriate and righteous way. And God could say, have you considered my servant Job? To Satan. So Satan questioned Job's reverence, and he said the only reason he continues to revere you and worship you is because you haven't touched him personally. You you took away his children, you took away his belongings, but he still has his own well-being. He's still okay. And so what Satan suggested here is skin for skin. Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. So he wants to prove that Job isn't righteous by having God allow him to afflict him. And if he afflicts him and Job curses God, then Satan will have made his point, which is Job is not a righteous man. But God is allowing this because Job is a righteous man. Do you see that? It doesn't seem fair, and it's very troubling to think that God would allow you to go through difficult times for his purposes, not just to prove to Satan some some truth, but for other purposes, and that's really what we're going to be talking about a lot in this book. And you think, well, I don't know if I believe that. Well, ask yourself this question practically in your own life. Have you ever gone through difficult times? Have you ever faced sickness, hardship, financial struggles, relationship problems, challenges, difficulties? Yeah, you have. And if you look at life saying, well, if God is good, he wouldn't allow this, then you've got a problem. You can't explain that. Why are you, as a person that loves God, challenged in going through trials? Why are you going through difficult times? Why did Jesus say, in this world you'll have tribulation? But went on to say, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Because you will experience trials and difficulties in this life. And anybody that tells you otherwise is not telling the truth. We know all too well that this is the reality we live in. We are just seeing behind the curtain here in the life of Job to what is taking place in heaven. If we didn't have that, we would just look at this situation and maybe come to some of the conclusions that Job's three friends come to. But I caution you to remember this going forward, that when you go through difficult times, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've done anything to deserve it. A very important truth. So this is what we see. Satan is questioning Job's reverence, is limited to his own well-being. So he challenges the Lord. And again, this is played out in a conversation that we can understand. Okay, These are heavenly things, but it's presented to us poetically in a way that we can understand it. But Satan challenged the Lord to test Job by removing his protection. See, he was protected by God. But Satan wanted him to remove that protection and allow his well-being to be affected. Now, self-preservation, think about self-preservation. It's one of mankind's strongest psychological motivators. People will do all sorts of things to protect themselves and to preserve themselves. They will. I mean, you, you see this. I mean, many times, for the sake of one's own well-being, someone will lie, they'll steal, they'll do all sorts of things. They'll cheat. And Self-preservation is, again, one of mankind's strongest psychological motivators, but it's not always true in the life, especially of God's people. How about the martyrs? The martyrs through the centuries, 
Many martyrs through the centuries have proved that this is not the strongest motivator psychologically. Self-preservation is a strong motivator, but love for God and faithfulness to God in the lives of martyrs has proven that it's greater than self-preservation. That is, like Jesus, who you know, did not look at the cross as, as something that he would avoid. He didn't, he didn't look at it and say, oh, I, I want to get away from this. No, he said, nevertheless, your will be done to the Father. He went and he gave his life. He gave up his self-preservation because of his love for us. So Jesus wasn't motivated by self-preservation. And those that follow Jesus, the martyrs through the centuries, the servants of God, faithful servants of God through the centuries who have given their lives and been persecuted for their faith, they don't allow self-preservation to motivate them over their love for God. Otherwise, no martyr would have ever been burned at the stake or put to death or persecuted in any way. And throughout the world today, there are those who are being persecuted for being Christians. I was reading an article about a woman, I believe it's in the UK, that this was taking place. She's been arrested now twice. Are you ready for this? I think she sits outside of an abortion clinic and prays silently. Now, she was arrested and not charged because what are they going to charge her with, a thought crime? But they arrested her again. What they're trying to do is intimidate her and discourage her from praying silently. Imagine that. It's like a couple of years ago, you had a football coach who went down on one knee and prayed at the center of the field, and some of the players joined him. And I believe he was fired. I I also believe that he won that case and was reinstated. So you see what, what, what happens oftentimes in this world. There's this intimidation that people like to do to us as Christians, that that it's all about self-preservation. If we can take away your job, if we can take away your freedom, uh, you'll be more concerned about your job and your freedom and your well-being than you will about serving God. That's the idea. But of course, there are also many cases in our world, even today, of people that are being put to death for their faith throughout the Islamic world, I'm sure in North Korea and places in China. I just read an article today. Uh, you know, it's, this, this, these wicked world powers, like the Chinese Communist Party, they're, they're just so evil. And now they've decided, I guess under the guise of, you know, epidemiology, that if you're a Christian, you go to a Christian church, you have to register on an app and let people know where you go to church. You really want to let the Chinese Communist Party know where you go to church? Of course not. So there's an underground church in China. But this is persecution. And this happens to righteous people. This happens to Christians, godly people. And some of them are put to death. So yes, it's true that self-preservation is one of mankind's, strong, mankind's strongest psychological motivators, but the joy that I have in sharing this with you is this, that martyrs have proven it's not the strongest. The love for God is the strongest. And many have and will give their lives, abandon self-preservation for serving God faithfully. And that's encouraging. And that really proves faith, doesn't it? When you consider all of the apostles, with the exception of John, who was also persecuted, were put to death. Paul was beheaded as well as a Roman citizen. These men and other women, they gave their lives. And so Satan is suggesting that that would never be true. He suggests that anybody, anybody or anyone who loves God would never put their own self 
behind a love for God. And yet Job has and does. The Lord in his sovereignty had once again predetermined to test Job in this way. He knew the outcome. He allowed it to play out. And it's been recorded for our edification, for our blessing. And you'll see that God has a purpose, and he explains it toward the end of the book somewhat. He doesn't give us all the answers, but we begin to understand, you know, he's God, so he can really do as he pleases. And if we're submitted to him, if we're his servants, then we have to be okay with that. And a lot of times, I'm not okay with that in my flesh. But I I read a book like this, and I'm reminded, God is God. He's sovereign. He has the right to allow Satan or the world powers to afflict us. And to question God about that would be to lack faith. Well, the Lord specifically allowed Satan to afflict Job with a physical illness. Now, we talked about the loss of possessions and the loss of loved ones last week. But let's talk about a physical illness. Because when you lose someone, you grieve. It's an emotional loss. Uh, When you lose your possessions, it's a financial loss. But when you lose your health, it's a personal loss. There's something that you're going through that you can't get away from. I mean, each of us, I'm sure, have been sick at some point over the last couple of years, maybe weeks. And when you're sick, you know, I know when I'm sick, all I think about to get me through it is in a couple of days, my fever's going to go away. I don't get sick that often, thank God. It's been a while. But, oh, my fever's going to go away. And, oh, my cough is going to go away. Or I'm going to get my strength back. It's going to just be a couple days. I just got to sit here, drink fluids, take care of myself, take my vitamins, rest, and get better. And I can bear up under that because I know that I'm healthy, generally, thank God, and I'm going to be okay. Just got to get through a couple of days. But for some of us, there's no end. For some of us, that sickness is only going to get worse. It may be terminal even. Or it may be so serious or chronic or reoccurring. Or it may be a condition that never goes away. That's much more difficult to bear up under. As far as Job knows right now, in this situation, in a minute we're going to see, he doesn't know whether he's going to die or get better. And sometimes we don't know that. See, that's where your faith is truly tested. In moments where God allows, maybe not Satan necessarily, but he allows things to happen in your life. He allows you to become ill. He allows for you to have some condition. You know, I know one of the sisters in our fellowship has got to go in for... Uh, knee replacement surgery. When she went to the doctor, she found out she not only needs knee replacement surgery, she needs hip replacement surgery. So imagine finding that information out. Talk about being off your feet, right? And there's others of you who are going through chronic illnesses, and the worst is when you go to the doctor and they say, "We, we don't know what's wrong with you. Or they suggest it's all in your head. I've known people with chronic illnesses their whole life in pain. There's one sister who used to attend the church, she's now in glory, who was in pain every day of her life. Faithful sister in the Lord. But you can imagine that these are really, truly trials, right? That's the point. The things we, most of us go through don't come close. Let's be honest. We call something like a bad day at work a trial, but this is a trial. And so we read in verse 7, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job, with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. You can imagine this is a a difficult condition, probably about the worst, most painful thing you can experience. 
I don't know if you've ever had something like this. I can remember in high school, I got the chicken pox. And uh, my, my best friend got it senior year. I got it freshman year, which was bad enough. But I remember thinking, oh, I never got the chicken pox. I never got them. All my friends had them when they were kids, and oh, I guess I'm never going to get it. And then I got it freshman year. Oh, not, not a whole lot of fun. If you've ever had the chicken pox, I think they have a vaccine for it now, but I just got them. And if you've ever had it, you know, it's pretty painful. It's pretty awful, pretty miserable, but it doesn't come close to what this is. But I, I remember sometimes you even get the sores on the bottom of your feet. Like, it, it's, it's not fun. Let's put it that way. But again, I think it lasts a week or two. Not the case for Job. Job is thought to have contracted some form of leprosy. And that leprosy was more than likely complicated by elephantiasis. So swelling, a skin condition, the rotting of the flesh, an awful, awful, awful experience, a horrible illness. And Satan was given the authority by God, given aloud, to afflict Job with this. Now last week we saw that he brought storms. He, he, was, he manipulated the elements in order to cause Job to suffer. He allowed a storm to come in and kill his children. Lightning come and kill some of his livestock. He allowed foreign troops and foreign peoples to come in and steal what he had. But now Satan is given the ability, allowed to afflict Job physically. This is very disturbing, I think, if we stop and think about it. It makes us feel a little insecure. First of all, why would God allow, to do, allow Satan to do this? And then second of all, Satan can do this if God allows it. But yeah, he can. But understand, every sickness is not Satan trying to get to you. Sometimes our bodies just wear out. We are all dying slowly once we reach adulthood. So a lot of what we suffer from is just the result of sin. Sin brings death, and because there's sin in our life and we're sinners, we have not been given our resurrected bodies yet, so our bodies are wearing out. So if, you're, if you do need to get knee replacement or hip replacement, it's not as if Satan showed up and kicked you in the leg. It's, it's that your body's wearing out. Satan, more than likely, has nothing to do with it, but believe me, Satan can work in your heart if you let him. God can also work in your heart if you let him through those difficult times. But yeah, you know, Satan will come along and say, see, where's God? You're going to be off your feet for a couple of months, and where's God in all of this? Even if he's not the author of it, even if he's not the one that had any part in it, he'll come along. Spiritual forces of wickedness will come along and whisper in your ear and tell you that God's forgotten about you, abandoned you, doesn't care about you. Or, like the friends of Job, come along and say, you did this to yourself, you see. God didn't want to have to do this to you, but you're such a miserable fool that God had to do this to you. And there's people walking around, Christians walking around, listening to that voice, when it would be better to say, like Job, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So this is a struggle. This is very difficult stuff, even to talk about, let alone to experience. But Job did not question God's testing. See, I got to be honest with you. I might have. 
You know, I mean, when, if what happened the one day was followed by what happened on this day, I might have said, what did I do? I must have done something. Why else would God allow these things? But you know what? That's what his friends thought. But Job knew in his heart he hadn't done anything wrong. You ever had a situation where you knew you didn't do anything wrong, maybe at work or with a family member? Like you knew. You're not perfect. You make mistakes all the time. But this time around, you didn't do anything. You didn't do what they were saying you did. Where were you on the night of, you know, March 8th? Well, you knew where you were. You weren't there. You didn't do it. But everybody thinks you're guilty. That's an awful place to be. That's a worse trial in some ways. But this was an awful trial. And so we read in verse 8, Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it. So whatever this was, the skin condition was also itchy, uncomfortable, in addition to being painful. So like I said, I think of the chicken pox or some type of uh, condition, some type of uh, affliction, just miserable. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. He was still among the ashes because he was still mourning the loss of his children. And his wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? That is, you still think you're okay with God? Curse God and die. Wow. That's rough, isn't it? His spouse, his his wife, she had come to the wrong conclusion as well. That's the last we hear of her, and it's probably a good thing. Because if that's what she had to say, you know, with friends like that who needs enemies, right? Curse God and die. And he replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. By the way, there are foolish men as well. We'll meet three of them in a little while in this study. You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? You see, that is such a... That's just such a, a, an incredible realization that Job came to the conclusion that you need to be able to accept good from God and trouble. And, and herein lies the problem with us as Christians. We think that we should only ever experience good and never experience trouble if we're Christians. There are all kinds of doctrines out there that will make you feel like you have no faith if you're sick. All kinds of doctrines that will say, if you're not prosperous, well then, you know, you've done something to deserve this affliction. You would be prosperous, you would be healthy if you were faithful, if you had integrity. Yet, how do you explain Job? Because it says, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So he didn't do anything to bring this about, and he didn't do anything to sin after it happened. You understand that? troubling, and yet we experience these things, if we're honest with ourselves, quite frequently in life, because we do experience trouble and not just good from God. That is, God allows trouble to come into our lives. So Job did not question God's testing. He responded to his illness simply by trying to cope with his discomfort as he continued to mourn. He's just trying to make the best of an absolutely horrific situation. And by the way, when you lose someone, when you lose things in your life when you have a financial loss or a personal loss or you lose your health, that's about the best you can hope for, right? I mean, think about it. Really, what you're really hoping to do is to just cope, to just cope with the discomfort. And I I know that doesn't sound like a very encouraging message, but where would you be if there was no God or God wasn't in your life? 
Because there's lots of people who experience suffering and trials and sickness and loss, financial and otherwise. They're, they're grieving, they're mourning, and you know, they don't have the comfort of knowing Jesus Christ. I thought about, a couple of weeks ago, I thought about the earthquake. There's been many earthquakes, but the first initial quake in, in Turkey and Syria. And I thought to myself, these people have nothing. They're living in misery on a good day, most of them. Um, many of them, not all of them, but many of them, they, they have nothing, or they're living in, in very impoverished circumstances. And then an earthquake comes through and kills tens of thousands of people. And I see the people crying, and I see the people weeping, and, and, and you know, they, they're sobbing. And I think to myself, the majority of those people are not Christians. And my heart breaks for them, because in that loss, in that horror, in the tragedy that they've experienced, in all the grieving, that's all they have. All they have is maybe a hope that it's going to get better. If a Christian goes through that kind of circumstance, and I'm sure some were there that were Christians and did, they have the hope that Job had of knowing that you can experience trouble and good from God, that God never leaves you nor forsakes you, amen? That God is working through these troubles for your good. But those that experience the same things we experience don't have that same comfort. So if you think it's bad to suffer as a Christian, imagine what it's like to suffer not being a Christian. That is far worse, because none of it makes any sense. At least we have the comfort of knowing God and having his word and knowing that he works through these things. As much as we don't want him to, he does. And that's a comfort. Don't despise that comfort. Don't, don't look at that and say, oh, yeah, well, that's a little comfort. No, that's a lot of comfort really. <clears throat> His wife had given up on him, and many people give up on us when we're going through difficult times. You know, <clears throat> there are some people that complain. I, I don't know if you ever met anyone that complains. I'm sure you have. <laughs> and you know those people that complain, and they complain about everything, right? And you see them coming, and you think to yourself, Ooh, where's the nearest exit? I don't want to hear them complain. And they complain about stuff like, oh, you know, I went to the Costco yesterday. They didn't have eggs. What, what am I supposed to do? They don't have eggs. I haven't seen eggs in the Costco for a month and a half. So we went to the shop right and got eggs. Okay. <laughs> or Trader Joe's. There are other options, you know. Oh, eggs are so expensive. Then don't eat eggs. But I like eggs. And just eat them and be quiet about it. You know, there are people who complain about everything. I hear them. I mean, when I went to the Costco the last time to get eggs, I walked in there and the woman threw up her hands and said, I came here for eggs and they don't have any. I said, I came here for eggs too, but there's other things to buy. Like she was really upset. And um, I just realized, you, if you approach life like that, complaining about everything, like all people don't want to be around you, trust me. They'll figure out ways to not invite you to Easter. Oh, uh, we're not really having anything. No, 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 we're not making a ham. No, no, no. You know, you don't want to be that kind of person. But there are lots of people like that, aren't there? There's lots of Christians like that. Let's not be those kind of people. We're not suffering like Job. Nobody here, I, I don't think anybody here is suffering like Job. Maybe you got the sniffles. You, you, you're, not, you're not suffering like Job. And neither am I. And to watch this man, 
cope with this great deal of discomfort should be inspiring, that he didn't curse God, that he didn't turn his heart away from God. He didn't sin by what he said. Oh, so many of us sin by what we say. I'm as guilty of it as the next person. We get upset over things like eggs. We get upset about gas prices, the oil prices. The last couple of years, I mean, man, I might have sinned by some of the things I said. Silly things that don't matter. And this man was suffering terribly. He's a good example. That's the point. He's a good example. One we should follow. When should God allow it? We go through suffering or sickness or illness. But his wife had given up on him. She questioned his integrity as a godly man. She believed that he had done something to deserve punishment. Curse God and die. You brought this on yourself. She questioned God's love for Job. She even despaired of his life. You know, we may avoid those people that complain. But she gave up on her husband, and her husband wasn't even complaining. He was just suffering. And sadly, sometimes we avoid people who are suffering. You know why? Because we don't like to think about it. It's like some kind of a supernatural thing. We think, oh, some superstitious thing. That like, well, I don't want it to rub off on me. You know? They have a dark cloud over them. If I get underneath that cloud, something bad will happen to me. Come on, we do this. And then the other thing is we don't like is we don't want to think about it. We don't want to think about like that God would allow something like this in someone's life. So if there's a Job in our lives, someone we know, and we see it happening to them, we don't, we don't want to go to the hospital. We don't want to think about it. We'll pray for them, but that's about as much as we'll do. We know why? Because it really is very uncomfortable to think that God would allow one of his children to suffer. But you know what I found? And I experienced this even recently. I found that when you sit with someone in their suffering, who's a godly person, you are encouraged. You are encouraged. It's interesting because on Christmas, we we visited a brother who we love very much who's unable to come out to church anymore because he's, he's older and he's suffering. And, you know, you think on Christmas you might have an attitude like, ah, it's Christmas, I don't want to think about anything negative, I want to have fun, it's Christmas! But, you know, we did what we knew we wanted to do and knew what would please God. I didn't even experience the joy of Christmas until we visited this person. That's when I experienced the joy of Christmas. Up until that point, I was more like Ebenezer Scrooge anyway. Just Christmas and all the stress that comes with it. After that visit, it all was put in perspective. Sometimes when we allow ourselves to sit with someone who's suffering, a hospital visit, a home visit, praying with somebody who's going through a difficult time, you feel it. You, you, you feel for them. But you know what? You're encouraged as well. And you experience God because you are the person of Jesus as Jesus works through you, the Holy Spirit in you, bringing that love and that comfort to someone else. So don't avoid people who are suffering. Don't run away from them. Don't be like this woman who just said, curse God and die. I, I wish you wouldn't call me anymore. Every time I think about him, it ruins my day. No, no. What we need to do is make ourselves available to those who are suffering. Because I promise you, in that time of visitation or prayer, you're going to be encouraged. 
Because that person, especially if that person knows God and is a Christian, they're going to they're be inspirational to you if you let them, if you let God work in that way. I encourage you to be open to those things. Don't run away from others who are suffering. What did Jesus say? Remember, I was, in, I was sick, right? I was in prison. You visited me, right? I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. We all know that wonderful parable. Are we living it? Well, he questioned his wife's wisdom, but he never questioned God's wisdom, even in the midst of all this suffering. He acknowledged that God reserved the right to bring physical trials into his life. And he trusted in the Lord because of who God is, his person, not the result of his own well-being. He didn't measure God against his circumstances. He measured his circumstances against God. And that's how he was able to trust God, even in the midst of this horrific test. See, the Lord tested Job by allowing Satan to bring sickness, but Job passed the test. This is the second test that he passed. And Satan had failed, once again had failed, to shake Job's faith. And sort of getting ready for the next section of this book, in the latter part of chapter 2, we read that when Job's three friends, in verse 11, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And that's a good thing. That's what we were talking about before. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. And up to this point, things are, are good. His friends came. They sat with him. These three men were friends that truly cared about Job. They did. It's when they tried to figure out God that they got into trouble. But they were good to be there for Job. Eliphaz was a descendant of Esau, because he was a Temanite. They were descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, who is Israel. Bildad was a descendant of Abraham and his second wife, Keturah, because he was a Shuite. Zophar, we don't know. We don't know where he was from or what his origin was. But later in this story, we're introduced to another man. His name is Elihu. He was a descendant of Abraham's brother Nahor. So all of these men that come and speak with Job in the book of Job are from a particular area, the, the land of Uz, you know, the, the area, as I said, sort of to the east of Israel, probably in the area of the land of Midian. They were Bedouin tribes. They were in the area of what is today Jordan. And so that's where this story takes place, is where this account comes from. But they were greatly affected by their mutual friend's suffering. In fact, Job's physical appearance was horrifically marred by this terrible condition. Imagine, his physical suffering caused these three friends to suffer emotionally. And you understand why. And I credit them because they made themselves available to him while respecting his suffering. And the way they did that is they didn't talk to him. They didn't try to figure out what was going on. These three friends were committed to stay at Job's side throughout his trial for seven days without saying anything. And I'm going to tell you this, sometimes silence, not speech, is the best service that friendship can render in sorrow. Don't be so quick to give advice or counsel or try to figure things out. Sometimes a hug, a prayer, 
Sometimes just letting someone know that you care about them is enough. Not trying to fix them. Why do we always try to fix everybody? Well, you know, if you just took more vitamin C... Sometimes it's best when someone's going through a time of suffering to not say anything. Just what's necessary. And I think that in this regard, at this time, his friends showed a lot of wisdom by saying nothing. Sometimes wisdom teaches us to be quiet. But we should be there for those we love. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for this, this wonderful book and all the lessons in it. And as we consider what Job is going through in this, in this account and, and, and in chapter 2 was afflicted with, we recognize that there are so many lessons here for us personally, but as we look outside of ourselves and realize that there are those in our own lives that are suffering, give us a heart to be able to be there for those who are suffering in a way that is helpful, encouraging. Help us not to shy away. Help us to, if necessary, sit with people Spend time with them, listen to them, speak with them, to be you to them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.